Does God like us as opposed to just love us? And why is this such a question for us? Why would we be a people that doubts whether God likes us? And I think there's several reasons for this. I think one of them is is that our, our focus on God as male, our focus on God as father in the paternalistic culture that we've got coming forward through the centuries, that puts love into the category of justice. That puts love into the category of setting standards and being held to standards because that's what fathers do. Our association with our, our biological father or the father who raised us comes into play here. When we think of God as male, think of God as father, then the way that we are raised is a natural connection that we have. And if our father was overbearing, if our father held us to standards, if our father even was a really good father, but still was loving as a male loves, that masculine take on love, then we're going to have a very different idea of the way Father God loves us and how we are loved. We're going to move into that legal place. We're going to move into that justice place. And so the question is, can Scripture help us here? Is there something that we can glean from Scripture, from the ancient Hebrews who wrote Scripture, to pull us into and to embrace a love beyond just duty, a love beyond just justice or commandment, something that actually moves into this playful attraction, this affection that we call liking. It's interesting to me, and this is something that's fascinated me for now for nearly 30 years, is how different the Hebrew language is, or an Eastern language is in general, from a Western language. Hebrew operates on a completely different principle. And to go right back to the beginning, just so we can try to understand this a bit, if you were going to come up with a whole new language, what would you do? Well, I think probably the first thing you'd do is you'd start with the spoken language as opposed to the written language, right? You'd look at the things that occur most in your life and you'd make sounds that corresponded with that thing. And so there'd be a sound for chair and there'd be a sound for table and there'd be a sound for wife and child and son and rain and the things that are always being experienced and the things that are most relevant to daily life. And we would have that that language, those, those nouns at least. And then we'd have the action words, and then we'd have the connecting words. Now we're going to try to go to put it down on paper somehow. So maybe the first thing that we would do would be to draw pictures of those same things that are the most relevant and important things in life. We'd have a picture of a sun, and we'd have a picture of this, and we'd have a picture of that. And that's exactly what happened with the ancient languages, exactly what happened with Hebrew. They started with a system of pictograms, is what they're called. And they were actually pictures, kind of like hieroglyphs of specific things. So the most important things in their life, like an ox, which was what plowed their fields and, and, and made their agricultural lifestyle actually work. And so they drew a picture of an ox's head. And if you can think of that, kind of a triangular face with the two horns sticking up. It's interesting, at some point, all their letters got flipped 180 degrees. So if you take a letter A and you turn it back, what would be our upside down, you still have the shape of the ox's head with the triangular face and the two horns. That's their aleph. That is our A. B, bet. The shape of a B 
is the shape of the basic tent, which was the, the nomadic domicile for the Hebrews. And it had two sections separated by a curtain, one for the men and one for the women. And so it was the floor plan of their house. And bet, B, means house. Aleph, A, literally means ox, but since they saw the ox as the, the strongest of, the, of all of the domestic animals, it meant strength. It meant leadership. And so these pictograms then became letters. And those letters all had a name and all had a meaning. And as you took two of those letters together, what you created what was called a root. And then you add a third letter and you have a child root. And you add a fourth letter and that becomes a word. And so the whole language is based on this root and pattern system. But the meanings go vertically through the root and pattern system. So when we start with the names of the family, which are the basic building blocks of, of their whole culture, we can start to put together the source meanings, what they understood about words like father and mother. At root, father, ab, that would be aleph and bet, that would be the ox and the house, right? Literally means strong house. The father was seen as the strength of the house. The father was seen almost as a tent pole that gave the strength and stability and the shape to the home. The father was the one who was literally the ex chief executive. He was also the king of, of his family, of his tribe, of the brothers, of the men. He was the leader. He was the judge. He was the executioner. He was the one who handled all the administrative aspects. He was the strong house or the strength of the house. Now, mother, M. And Aleph can be pronounced or vocalized either with an A or an E. And so it's still Aleph for the E part. But Mem, the M, means water. And if you think about the M, originally it was the ripples of the surface of water has been simplified now to what we have as our M. So mother, M, literally means strong water. What in the world are they talking about there? Strong water. When they used to tan their hides, they would boil them in a pot of water. And what would bubble to the surface was a thick, sticky, white substance that they would skim off. And they would literally use it as a glue, as an adhesive for creating their tents and whatever else they needed to do. And so strong water, the woman was seen as the one who binds the family together. It's so beautiful to see how these original meanings give an, a, a view into, a look into the roles and the way that these people functioned within a family. Moving down a little bit further, ah, ah, A-H-H -H is the way it would be spelled, Aleph Het. The, the H, the Het there, was a picture of a wall. So literally a brother was a strong wall. The brothers were the, literally the warriors. They were the ones who created the, the barrier, the strength, the defense against whatever was out there. And Ben, son, Bet and Nun, which is a picture of a germinating seed originally in the pictograms. That was the house that continues. And so you see the basic family members all having this specific role that they play. But this morning, father and mother, strong house, strong water. How does this work? How, do we, how can we understand what is going here in terms of the father's love? If you think about the father, the strong house, we're talking about accomplishment. When you think about the mother, strong water, 
the, the force that holds the family and binds the family together. We're talking about relationship there. It's a question between doing and being. The Martha and Mary story is a perfect example of this dissonance you know, that we feel between just doing and being. Martha, who always had to do things and was trying to, a little bit of a control freak, making dinner, doing all the things that needed to happen, and there's Mary just sitting at the feet of Jesus between doing and being between strong house and strong water. Now, you find out that in Hebrew, it's never either or. It's always both and. We in the West see things dualistically, see things as separate, thinking that we have to choose between doing and being and which one's better and which one's worse. No, it's both and. It's those together. It's a balance between the two, between the strong house, between the strong water, between doing and being, between accomplishment and relationship. And this is the way it works in in Hebrew language. Good and evil, we typically place in this dualistic, completely diametrically opposed concepts that are always in collision with each other. But in Aramaic, taba and bisha, good and evil, how we would translate them, literally means ripe and unripe. There's a continuum between the two. Evil is just understood as being immature, unable to do what you were designed to do yet the way a small child is unable to be potty trained because nerve and synapse haven't completed their connections yet. So there's a connection between the two. Light and dark, nura and heshuka. Not necessarily light in terms of the kind of light we can see, but light in terms of the straight, orderly rays of the sun as opposed to the swirling, chaotic energies of wind and water. When God says, let there be light, what he's really doing is bringing order to the chaos, not so much bringing visible light to darkness. But there is that idea of the two things connecting and working together. We need both. We need the straight ways of order and harmony and understanding, but we also need the curved and mysterious energies of water and wind. Day and night, same thing, yauma, Layla, Yama, again, the time to go out and accomplish things, and nighttime, the time for introspection, for consolidation, for dreaming, and moving in completely mysterious directions. Male and female are seen in the same way. The same kind of complementary energies that create one complete connection between, say, cognitive and intuitive, between understanding something and being able to intuit and move between the clear and the mysterious, or if you will, between dogs and cats, right? Same sort of thing. There is your dog and there's your cat. Dog is right there. He's clear. He's right in your face. And the cat, who knows where the cat is? Off doing something mysterious. So what about God? Our Father. Does that mean God is male? Does that mean God's some sort of, of, of a man or has a masculine tendency, energy, nature? Or is he female, or is it neither? Is it both? I mean, what's going on here? Once again, we can't understand the Hebrew mind until we understand the concept of unity, what they call echad. Their greatest prayer from Deuteronomy 6 is called the Shema, which means to hear, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Aduhai, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is The Lord is God. The Lord is one. And the idea here is that oneness, that unity. 
But unity isn't one thing. Unity to the Hebrew mind is multiple things functioning as one. Disparate things that function as one thing. This is the way they see father and mother working. Two separate energies functioning as one. Necessary, complementary, equal, but different. This is so important for us to understand. The strong house and the strong water create the perfect marriage. The marriage between the strength, the justice, the accomplishment, and then just the being, the relationship, the binding together, the curved energies, as opposed to the straight and the clear and the hard. So, is it legitimate to then to say, Mother God? Our mother? See, that's sticking in everybody's craw right now, isn't it? That's just a little weird. Not yours. Okay. Jerry's okay with it. <laughs> it's really difficult for a lot of people. But let's take a look at Proverbs. Proverbs 1, verse 20. It's in the an insert or up on the screen, I'm sure. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. This is chokhmah, wisdom. And it's always personified in Hebrew as female. She, personified as a woman. And this is the understanding between knowledge and wisdom. The two. Wisdom taking a step forward as divine knowing, divine understanding, personified as female. This runs throughout Hebrew culture. The word for spirit, ruach in, in Hebrew, ruha in Aramaic, and malkutha, kingdom, those are all feminine words, feminine nouns. And so literally, spirit is she. And literally, kingdom is queendom because they're seen as feminine, even though God is spoken of in the masculine. But you see this moving back and forth, this shifting back and forth. You know, sometimes it's difficult when you're writing prose because we don't have any neuter third-person pronoun. So it's always he or she, and what do you say? And then we say they, but that doesn't make sense because that's plural. And so sometimes you shift back and forth between he and she. Some writers do that you know, just to show that they're being equally opportunistic or whatever and even-handed and all. This is kind of what's happening in the Hebrew mind. They're moving back and forth between the male and the female because they know, they understand. It's not either or, it's both and. And both are necessary to full understanding of who their God is. And the feminine words here for spirit, for kingdom, are pointing us toward motion. Spirit is always in motion. Pointing us toward the experience of relationship pointing us toward wisdom versus knowledge. And that's so important. When you think of knowledge, knowledge is acquired. It's something we get. Wisdom is something that we have to experience, right? We can't have wisdom until we've lived and experienced. That's why usually wisdom comes later on in life. Knowledge is having a lot of things to say. Wisdom is knowing when to keep your mouth shut. Someone said that knowledge without wisdom is like a kid with his father's gun. (laughs) You know, it's dangerous. And then someone also said, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. 
Wisdom is so important. But wisdom is not something you get out of a book, is it? Wisdom is something that is relational. Wisdom is something that is experiential. Wisdom is something that moves through every moment, every detail of our lives. It's not accomplished. It's experienced. And it takes us to that deeper knowing. When the scriptures talk about knowing God, their understanding of knowing, yada, is experiential knowing. It's a wisdom knowing. It's not out of a book. It's not head knowledge. Take a look at Hosea, verse 11. Chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord says, when Israel was a child, okay, now he's anthropomorphizing the nation of Israel itself. When Israel was a child, I loved him. He's speaking for God right now. I loved him and called him out of Egypt as my son. But the more I called to him, the more he turned away from me. My people sacrificed to Baal. They burned incense to idols. Yet I was the one who taught Israel to walk. I took my people up in my arms, but they did not acknowledge it that I took care of them. I drew them to me with affection and love. I picked them up and held them to my cheek. I bent down to them and fed them. That imagery there is so beautiful. The word affection is there. This is a mother's love. This is God loving as mother over the whole nation of Israel, over the people in Israel, giving us this glimpse of the type of connection, the type of relationship that the Father has with us. God, again, presented in the feminine. El Shaddai, have you heard that before? The name of God? The Jews had dozens of names for God, and each one had a different facet of God's nature being portrayed. El Shaddai, It's an interesting one because usually it is translated as God Almighty. El being the the strong leader and Shaddai. But what Shad really means in Hebrew is a breast or a teat. Literally, Shaddai would be two danglers. It's the way that it would translate directly from the Hebrew. And El Shaddai literally means mighty teat. And it's pointing to the provision. It's pointing to fertility. It's pointing to the mother's embrace, the connection that she has. Everything about that relationship with mother is now being portrayed to God. The Jews weren't at all, you know, shy at that seeing their God moving back and forth between male and female energies, between male and female energies and natures, and they understood that both together or what made God who God really is in their lives. And this is what's important. How can God, to us, be both father and mother? That's going to be our question, because we're still thinking dualistically. It has to be one or the other. It can't be both. Two disparate things can't be true at the same time. You know, Now, Jews have no problem with this. They have what's called block logic, where they just step away from the paradoxes and let them be unresolved. But for us trying to resolve this, how can we do that? How can a Western mind resolve God as both father and mother? Well, let me use an analogy here. The earth is both round and flat at the same time, isn't it? In a very special way. We all know that the earth is round. We've seen pictures from space. We know that it's a sphere. And yet every single day of our lives, we experience the earth as flat, 
Our whole lives are built on the fact that the earth is flat, that we can build houses, that we can build roads on a flat surface that isn't going to tilt and things falling off the edge. We know, in fact, the earth is round, but in experience, in everyday life, in everything that is relevant and matters to our daily lives, the earth is flat. This is how it is with God. Yes, he is father in fact. He's creator. He is judge and executor and all of those things. But in daily experience, how do we experience Father God? If we're experiencing him at all, if we're connected with him at all, we're experiencing him as mother. That love, that embracing, that affection is what we are going to experience every single day of real connection with God. God is a strong house. He is the just leader, in fact, in our minds. But he's the strong water. He is binding us all together, even at the subatomic level. He is a compassionate lover in experience in life. This is how we're going to experience God. Jesus had an intimate relationship with his father. He called him Abba, which in Aramaic is a, an affectionate term. We could translate it as daddy if we want to. But he experienced his Abba first in his mother's love, the spirit moving through Mary, everything that he understood from that relationship was coloring and transferring over to his relationship with Father God. And he made that connection. Obviously, nobody in Judaism called Father God Abba to that point. That was too familiar. That was blasphemous. He was the king of the universe. He stood on top of the pyramid. And how Jesus is saying, no, he functions this way. For Jesus and for all of us, think about this. Until we experience Father God, as mother, then father is going to remain distant. He's going to remain aloof. And there's not going to be any change in our lives that we can possibly see. Because God at a distance is not going to change us and move us from a base of fear to a base of love. This is what Jesus is trying to get across with us. And he models this in everything that he does. In every encounter that is recorded in Scripture, he models this Emma first, Mommy first, and then Abba. He starts with relationship. He starts with compassion. And then he moves to teaching. Then he moves to go and sin no more. But he starts with complete connection, complete relationship with the mother's love. At the end of Mark 1 and across the line into Mark 2, he, does, he has three encounters all in a row. The first one is with a leper. And the leper comes to him and says, Jesus, if you're willing, you know, can you cleanse me? And what does Jesus do? He reaches out and he touches him. And he says, I am willing. Be healed. He touched him before he healed him. That is breaking a huge ritual boundary within Judaism. To touch a leper, to touch one who is unclean, makes you ritually unclean. A Pharisee, a teacher, a rabbi would never do that. They needed to go and they needed to prove themselves clean to the 
priest at the temple before that they could be touched. And here Jesus touches him and then heals him. He starts with compassion. He starts with what the leper really needs. Why does he need cleaning? Why does he need cleansing and healing? So he can be back in community. He was shunned. He had to call out, unclean, unclean, so that people would then give him a wide berth. He probably hadn't had human contact in years. And he certainly couldn't trade. He couldn't be part of community as a leper. He was an outcast. The first thing Jesus does is reach out and touch him. He leads with mother. He leads with Emma. And then he moves to Abba and gives him instructions about who to tell and not to tell and what to do. In the very next breath, Mark tells us about the paralytic, the one who is lowered down through the hole that they cut in the roof, right? And what is the first thing that Jesus does? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, he calls him son. His followers are kind of a little bit outraged because, hey, that's what he calls us. And he hasn't just met this guy. He hasn't even healed him yet. This guy hasn't expressed anything, any remorse in that culture. If you were infirm like that, it's because you did something wrong. So where is the forgiveness? Where is the remorse? Where is the repentance? Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is breaking a theological boundary here. He wasn't supposed to declare this man forgiven. Only the temple priest could do that. But he leads with what the man needs to hear. I'm still part of a family. I am forgiven. I can now get up and walk, pick up my pallet and go. Jesus leads with Emma, leads with the strong water. And then from there, he's crossing through the major thoroughfare near Capernaum and he sees the the tax booth, the levy, toll booth, if you will. And he turns as as he's... Heading away, he turns back and says, Hey, come follow me, and points to Levi. Here is a man who is a tax collector, a Jew, who is seen as in collaboration with the Roman occupation, collecting taxes for the Romans. He, too, was outcast. He, too, was someone that nobody would connect with. Later, Jesus goes over to Levi's house for dinner, something you would never do. Jesus is breaking a huge social barrier between ritual barriers Theological barriers and social barriers, Jesus breaks them, always leading with mother, with the mother's love first. Father comes later. The teaching comes later. Instruction comes later. Head knowledge comes later. The first thing always and ever has to be the establishment of relationship, the establishment of total acceptance. This is what Jesus is modeling for us. And we can only be healthy We can only be balanced in this same order. We want to retreat back to our books and just learn everything we need to know so that the next step out the door is going to be risk-free. And you know what? That's not the way it works. When do you ever get enough information to make a risk-free decision? It's always going to be leading with mother first. It's always going to be leading with relationship. It's always going to be extending yourself into a relationship that you don't know is going to be reciprocated that feels risky. Because when you put your heart out there, when you open up to another person, you're giving them permission to hurt you and you don't know what's going to happen. But Jesus said, this is the way. This is the only way to the Father. Through me, through this way. Leading with the heart. Leading with relationship. And then moving into any kind of teaching or knowledge which solidifies and 
backs it up and creates guardrails and whatnot that we need in the group. But the big piece is the mother's love. The big piece is this absolute acceptance. You probably heard the phrase, a face only a mother could love. That's what we're talking about here. Mother loves unconditionally, you know, sees this beautiful child when everyone else sees something else, maybe, I don't know. But she is completely fixated on that child. The mother's love truly is the closest to the allness and the absolute nature of the father's love that we can get on this earth. Now, I realize that some of you didn't grow up with that kind of love, didn't grow up with a mother figure like that, didn't grow up with that kind of absolute acceptance. And that's a tragedy because it is so difficult for us if we've never experienced that kind of acceptance from someone. It makes life so frightening, so difficult to take the risks that we need to take. How can we take the risk to put our heart out there if no one has ever done that for us? No one has ever modeled that for us, showing us what it looks like, how it works, how it's even possible to do and survive. This is the difficulty that we face, many of us. Mother's love, the memory of mother's love, is the counterweight. It's the balance to a difficult life, a hurtful life. We need to know that that exists. We need to know that that is ours. The Father pushes us to standards, is moving us out to accomplishment and the things that we need to do. But Mother is balancing, always giving us that launching pad and landing pad, the safe place to move out from and come back to. Ever watch a small child at the surf line with their mother? The mother's sitting in the sand and the little kid runs out into the surf, right? And as soon as the wave comes in, runs back and jumps into mom's lap. And then when it goes back out, that's it. That's what we need to be able to move out in life and do the things we need to do, knowing that we can run back into mom's lap. And whatever we've done out there, whether we've succeeded or failed, it doesn't matter because we've got the face that our mom can love. We need to have that. We need to know that. We need to know that somebody takes pleasure in us. Somebody can't wait to see us. Isn't that what we all want? Think of your friend. Think of somebody that you really like. You really like. This is a person that you can't wait to see. This is the person that you always want to invite to everything. This is the person, as soon as they walk around the corner, come in the room, that you can't help the smile going across your face. Maybe it's your grandchild. And you just, as soon as you see that little face, ah, everything in you just lights up. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a friend. It doesn't. Think of that person that you know, that you like, with that kind of affection, with that kind of pleasure, with that kind of desire to be with. Don't you want someone to feel that way about you? Of course you do. Every single one of us not only wants it, but needs it. Needs to know that somebody really likes us. Somebody feels that way about us. And no matter where we go or how much we mess up, that door is never shut. It's always there. The relationship is always there. How can we know for sure? How can we know that 
anybody likes us that way, let alone God. See, this is why we stress the contemplative life here at The Effect. The shutting down of all of the head knowledge, all of the stream of thoughts that are constantly just spinning around in our minds so that we can just get down to ground zero, so we can just be present to the moment and we can see the relationships for what they really are. Because until we do that, until we get out of our heads and stop thinking of every relationship around us in those cognitive terms that keeps them distant, we can never come in and really connect and see what is possible. See what God really thinks about us. For many of us, it may be the first time that we've ever encountered mother's love. And it will be with Father God. It keeps messing with our heads. But when we finally let go of Father God as a concept and just come in and connect, we will experience him as mother's love, as Emma, as mommy. And we know that we know that we know that we're safe. We know that we're liked. We know that we have a place at the table always. So what does it look like when dad acts like mom? (laughs) What does that look like? Is there a picture we can turn to? And I want to come all the way back to the prodigal son again. And I put it in there. You can read at least the first part of it if you want to. But I think I just want to tell the story because it's important for us to understand what Jesus is really driving at here. He says a man has two sons. The younger son, he's the crazy one. The older son is the one who just continues to comply, you know, to, to, to do what he's supposed to do. The younger son says, give me what you owe me right now. I can't wait. And the father does it. Divides up his wealth, gives the son what he needs or what he's asking for. This is absolutely, to a a Hebrew listener, especially in the first century, this would be absolutely outrageous. The most important thing was honoring your father and mother. This was done with military precision because it really was. The families, the clans were like little armies. They were like, like, like little military, you know, communities because there had to be a strict chain of command. There had to be absolute authority vested in the father, in the leader of that clan, or else the whole thing fell apart. We're talking about survival here. We're talking about subsistence here. For anyone to disrespect the father, that was a capital offense. You could be stoned for that. For this boy to ask for his inheritance now, an inheritance that would have stayed with the family in that culture, the boys never left the family. It's it's the wives that came. You always got daughters-in-laws. You never lost a son. And so that inheritance would stay with the family and sustain the family. He's asking to take it out. He's basically saying to his father, you're as good as dead to me. He should have been stoned. He should have been run out with a rail. And yet the father just gives him what he's asking for. Dads don't do that in Hebrew culture. He's acting like mom. (laughs) and then the boy takes the money and he becomes prodigal with it. He takes it to a distant land and he spends it on all sorts of high living and runs out of money when a famine hits. And now he finds himself just getting hired out to anybody who will take him and he is reduced to actually feeding and taking care of the pigs. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, you know that swine is an unclean animal. He's basically saying that he had dropped as far as he could possibly go dealing with the excrement of the pigs until he finally comes to his senses and he says, you know what, even my father's hired hands 
have enough to eat. I can't even get the pods that the pigs are eating to feed myself. I'm going to go home and I'm just going to say, you know what, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer fit to be called your son. Just please bring me in as one of your hired hands. And he starts his trip back home again. And you can just picture him rehearsing that over and over and over again. Have you ever had that situation where you needed someone's forgiveness and you knew that you really messed up? And you're rehearsing the speech over and over and over again. And then he finally gets to his father's property. And his father sees him still a long way off. And you have the picture of father even just watching every day out the window, looking at the horizon, looking at the, the road where it goes over the, the rise, waiting to see for the first sign of his son. And when he sees him, you can almost hear the scream that escapes his, his lips. And he starts running Hebrew patriarchs don't run. That's undignified. And they have those long robes. He probably had to gather them up so that he could run and show his white knobbly knees as he's running along. Hebrew patriarchs don't show skin in public. That's obscene. That's abomination. He's doing everything wrong. And when he gets up to his son, his son starts the prepared speech, right? Father, I've sinned against you in heaven. He doesn't even listen to what he's saying. He drapes himself around his son. And now this, if you read the text, it's very spare, you know? He embraces him and he kissed him. No, that's not what the language says. What the language says is he, he draped himself around his son. All that nice pig excrement against his robes And he didn't just kiss him. He couldn't stop kissing him. The nature of the language is he's just kissing him and kissing him. And here's this boy trying to get this or her speech out. It's kind of like in that movie. Hey, come on, stop, shut up. You had me at hello. And he immediately turns and he turns to his servants and says, you need to find the best calf that we've got. You need to kill it. You need to be rings from his finger. You need sandals for his, his feet, a new robe because we're going to have a party. We're going to celebrate because my son was dead and now he's alive. That's what it looks like when dad acts like mom. He doesn't require the standards of remorse or even repentance. All he requires is presence back in his presence. That beloved face in front of him and he just goes for it. He just flies to it. There's no hesitation. There's no sense of outrage. There's no sense of broken relationship. It's all right here, right now. He's basically telling him, and the Father by extension is telling us, there's no party, there's no celebration until you come home. Just come home. Will you please come home? That's how God feels about every single one of you. Every single one of us. Just come home. You're running around imagining all these things about what I'm feeling or what I'm thinking, whether I like you. Just come home and I will show you. Get out of your head. Come in for a landing and start walking home. And you will know what it looks like when dad acts like mom. Let's pray. Father, all we can do is sit here in amazement and thank you. Thank you for being our mother and our father and our brother and our friend 
in every possible relationship that we can experience in this life, you are that relationship as well. You are all those things functioning as one to us. Help us to see that. Help us to see that we don't need to divide things up into little compartments, that we can just take it all in as once. Make it really simple. Make it joyous again. To experience who you are so we never have to question again whether you like us. It's baked in the cake. It's who you are. Help us to see that. Help us to come home and have the party and just know that we know. Father, this Mother's Day, confer, give your blessing to all these ladies who have worked so hard, have given so much of themselves for their families, for their children, and continue to do so every single day. And help us to see in their love and their nature, the way they go about binding their families together, a way for us to be closer to you. Thank you for always giving us the model, always giving us the vision of who you are in our daily lives. And thank you for loving us. And never let us forget, we can only love you back or anyone else because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.